The scripture reading today is Acts 2, 1 through 13. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed, these people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We decided to keep that drunk part in there because we got a reputation to maintain around here. <laughs> About all be, people be drinking. All y'all be drinking. Uh, anyway, my name's Jonah, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fun things happening this morning. Uh, we, if, if you don't have kids, just know that this is a big day in the life of our Sojourn kids. Super pop-up Sunday. Uh, so if you walk around the building and you smell popcorn, it's because we made popcorn because each kid is transitioning to a different age group, which is sometimes scary, sometimes exciting, but we're, we're thankful for what's going on over there. Uh, we also, there's some merchandising that's about to go on here, all right? So, so get excited. If you've been noticing, our women's ministry has kind of taken off. Michelle Jackson leads that, and she's been doing an amazing job. Yeah, I don't know if she's in here. She's skipping church for the sake of the ministry, I guess. We can, um, but Lindsay Spencer designed these fancy new T-shirts. Uh, I think Lindsay was in the last service, so she designed the T-shirts that creatively say Sojourn Women. And then Marissa Percival, I don't know if she's here. She was in the last service. She's not here. Uh, you know, laid it out and ordered and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so if you're a guy who wants to support someone in Sojourn Women or women in general, or if you're a lady who's excited about what's going on there, you can buy those for 10 bucks. All the money goes back into Sojourn Women. And it's not like it's a hipster shirt in the sense that it's nice, soft and high quality, but it's not like $40 like you get at the trendy store. It's a good shirt for 10 bucks. Like people actually pay 40 bucks for t-shirts. That's so sad. Uh, And if you're like, hey, I want to do more than just contribute to women's ministry today. I know there's more. You want to be a second mile Christian. You can, I'm really, I'm I'm excited about the women's t-shirts, but this next thing is you know, it's fruits of years of labor on, on my part here. And now, oh, there's Michelle again. Look what she's holding right down there. Right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the, the perfect size coffee mug. I'm glad you're excited about this, James. So let me explain something to you. Uh, first of all, this is our Sojourn students put this together. It shows how much we're growing up as a church. All the money for selling these mugs is going for scholarships to camp next summer. 
So here we are in summer of 2018, planning for something summer of 2019, which is something you do when you're an adult, you know, you plan for the future. Um, but I've, lo- I've looked around, I've gone to Target before, and they have those like 37-ounce coffee mugs, or you go into whatever, the grocery store, the gas station, you get like your 64-ounce insulated. You know, we're not savages here, people. Who, no one can drink that much coffee. Get the IV out and put it in. I just reject that wholeheartedly. This year will we'll comfortably hold eight ounces of coffee. Uh, it's classic diner m- mug shape. It's a rounded lip, so it feels pleasant to drink from. I mean, like, I've worked really hard at up, upping our coffee mug game around here. So, 10 bucks, go get it. It's got a cool new logo that doesn't look very different from our old logo. Um, so go enjoy that. And again, all the money goes into Sojourn students. Now, the other thing I'm excited about is we're starting a new series on the five identities today. Uh, we're through the book of James, which was stunningly uncomfortable for me. And hopefully this will be a little more uh, gentle on us, but it's the word of God. So we'll see what happens. Um, this is something you may be familiar with, maybe not the images, but what they represent, because we've been talking about the five identities at Sojourn for about 20 years now. Um, not as much in the last few years. They've become assumed more than necessarily explicitly talked about. And we want to come back to some of this. In a lot of ways, uh, these five identities, which we'll talk about what each one of these symbols mean. We're over here today with worshipers, megaphone, hey and uh, they're, they're the ways that our core values find expression. So back in the spring, you can go listen to these sermons. We said as a church, what's at the center of everything we do? The truth of God, the beauty of God, and the goodness of God. Truth, beauty, goodness. How will those show up in the world? Uh, through these five identities. And so you'll hear us say a phrase all the time, what we do flows from who we are. So whatever you do or don't do is fundamentally an issue of identity of who you are and and how you see yourself. Uh, So what you do flows from who you are. And on the flip side of that, if you want to come at it from another angle, what you do reinforces who you are. So you can do the kinds of things that you do, like that your identity says you do and, and reinforce that, or you can live in all kinds of internal confusion by doing things contrary to what your identity does. And that sounds like confusing and philosophical, I know, but it's something that all of you have experience with. So think about, think about a, um, a marriage for a second. Uh, I have the, mostly it's a privilege, most often it's a privilege. Sometimes you're like, oh boy, here we go. Um, but most often it's a privilege to perform. That was a joke. I meant to take that out of the first one and it didn't work in the first service either, so whatever. Uh, In every wedding ceremony, there's a line I say that's wonderful and totally mysterious. Um, I'll say, in a few moments, you will be united together as one flesh. And it's rooted in this beautiful verse from Genesis where it says, for this reason, meaning the beautiful woman that he's into, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, first and foremost, in the wedding ceremony, this becomes true theologically, right? So in the eyes of God, their status is changed. He sees them united together. And we say, you know, like the song, yes and and amen. It's also true legally. So I do my, like the the magic spell in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one flesh. We sign the paper. And then in the eyes of Indiana, one flesh, right? So for both the state and God, theologically, legally, the status has changed. All the people watching it are like, wow, they weren't married and now they are married. And look at, you know, there's always the funny moment because the ring never fits right or they get nervous and you got to force it on. And everyone's like, well, they're, they're married now. 
Uh, so everyone in the room, God, the state, and all the people see that, you know, status has changed. Identity has changed. You're single, now you're one. There's a problem that's almost universal, though. In the eyes of the couple, their standing has not changed. Some of you remember being married, and there's some things that are different right away, right? Like, I remember having the deep realization that we are not going home to separate houses tonight. We are going to the same place. There's all kinds of things that change immediately, but it's not like we woke up the next morning and we're like, ah, this is what one flesh feels like. We're totally safe with one another We're totally intimate. We know each other in and out. We finish each other's sentences. You know what I mean? This kind of love that we long to experience, this intimacy that we long to have, it takes years and years to develop, years and years to develop. And it also never happens accidentally. You you never find an old couple. You know the couple that they both have gray hair and they're holding hands at Denny's, just eating, just happy to be quiet and eating. And you can just tell that they like fit together. That never, you don't just wake up and do that. There's years of intentional behaviors behind that. When you get married, your actions, your habits, your words have to change if you want to experience the glory of being married, right? You, you may have to stop playing basketball every night. You may have to stop playing video games as much. I learned that there isn't actually a cleanup fairy that goes around the house and picks up your stuff. So stop throwing your stuff on the ground and leaving dishes out. And I'm still working on learning that, right? Like there's things that need to change. You have to learn how to love your spouse particularly. How strange we would think it is if we saw a wedding ceremony and then watched as the couple went home to separate houses and they lived entirely separate lives. They continued on functionally being single, and yet they introduced themselves as a married couple. You see what I mean? So yeah, you can have a theological standing and a legal standing, but what's the healthier marriage? Or if you're a single person, which one, which marriage would you rather have? The one where, you know, you're living by yourself and you point to the wall and you're like, that's my wedding certificate. That's how I know I'm married. There it is. Would you rather have the legal marriage? Would you rather have the note written by your pastor that confirms that you're theologically married? Or would you rather have an intimate, safe, loving, real marriage? So we get this in marriage, okay? Identity changes both in an instant and then over time. Each one of these five identities are legal realities, theological realities, but they're also functional ones that develop over time. And again, everybody knows this. Uh, you can see the spots of disconnect in your own life. If, if theological information was enough, boy, would Christianity be easy. Because all of you who are anxious, like by a nervous twitch, who's anxious this morning, right? Like, I am anxious this morning. I'm very anxious this morning. And if it was easy enough to say, hey, I want you to know God's in control, then it's just like Benny Hinn service. We would all pass out and no one would be worried anymore. But how, then we get anxious because we're anxious, but we know God's in control, but I'm still anxious. And why isn't it working? And we try, so the, the theological information just isn't enough. There's, there's functional realities that need to take root. So each identity is a statement of who you are in reality, but it's also an invitation in how to experience that reality functionally. So it's both a statement of who you are and their pathways of becoming. 
These are all true of you. If your faith is in Christ, everything I'm going to say is true of you in this series. So these are true of you in Christ, but they're also invitations to you from Christ. Invitations to experience life to the full, of being transformed. And I I just want to emphasize again, the Christian life happens over time. It is a developmental religion. There is no light switch that hits and everything changes in an instant. We'll talk about it in a second. Like some big things will change right away, but these truths sinking down and us becoming who we already are takes time. So each week we're going to look at our legal reality as God's children. That's kind of our overarching identity, sons and daughters of God. And then we're also going to look at how each identity serves as a pathway of living into who we already are. You could think of it as a rule of life or just practical rhythms so that we can become who we are. And so this week, we're starting with the first identity. That's our identity as worshipers. And the story begins, we're going to look at all Every sermon, this is going to be through the book of Acts. As a church, we're really good at looking at what does the scripture say. So the propositional truth statements for you grammarians out there. We have a harder time looking at what does the scripture show us. Uh, And if you're a a student of the Bible, you know more than 60% of the Bible is stories and songs. So not propositional truth statements. So we're looking at these stories to see what is going on. What does a worshiper look like? And what happens when someone lives into their identity as a worshiper? And the story starts on a pretty ordinary day. It says, Acts 2.1, all the believers were meeting together in one place. I think this is pretty cool. There was a time in history when all of the Christians could be in a room together. There was a time where they could all be in a room together. What would that have been like? That sounds pretty cool to me. Um, If you go right before this in your Bible, in Acts chapter 1, there's some interesting stuff going on. Uh, So first, uh, Judas's replacement had just been chosen before we read this. Before that, they had been, uh, as one theologian puts it, they had been a limping 11. You know, 11 in the scriptures is a is an incomplete number. Something's wrong with it. You may remember Judas betrayed Jesus and then went outside and hung himself. And so, because Jesus had instituted 12, the apostles, the people who were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, said we need to have a 12th. So they vote on who it should be. Right after that, Peter stands up. Peter, right? Like the rock, the man. Uh, He walked on water. Peter. Peter gives a pep talk. So again, every Christian's in the room. Peter stands up. And he basically says, don't panic. What happened to Jesus and and what happened with Judas, all of this was predicted beforehand. And he he shows them this in the book of Psalms. So I want us to think for a second. Why are they all gathered together? Every Christian in this, you know, days old faith gathered together in the same room. Why is Peter having to give a, a pep talk? convincing everybody that things haven't gone sideways. Or I guess just to come out with it, how scared do you think these Christians were? So Jesus had risen and he told them to wait. But they weren't popular out there. People were looking for them. And, you know, even Peter giving the pep talk and it wasn't too long ago that Peter was pretending he didn't even know Jesus. I don't know how confidence-inspiring that would be when the guy who lied multiple times, point blank, about knowing Jesus is now trying to reassure everybody. The other apostles, right, the superheroes, 
Uh, they were the same ones that Jesus, when he's so anxious, he's sweating blood. It says, can you guys pray with me? And they fall asleep instead. You know, I don't, maybe you come this morning and you hear the apostles or you've been to Rome and you see the 18, 20 foot tall statues of all of the apostles and you just see them as these giants. And in the pages of the scriptures, at least at this point, they were not. And now their lives are at risk and they're scared. So they're gathered together, they're waiting. And then something incredible happens. Jesus' promise is fulfilled and the Holy Spirit descends and fills his people. And this is what happens. What looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking another language as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. And you heard the rest of the text. I mean, the, the whole town is confused and amazed by what's going on. People are looking for an explanation. And they say, man, the Christians must be drunk again. They go, like, do you see what a, a stark contrast this is? They go from hunkering down and hiding and in a, almost a moment, they hit the streets and they're hollering. They go from being scared and isolated from, from staying put to getting out and spreading the word from, from not hiding, but to hollering. And, and how does this happen so fast? How did they change like that? And maybe you're thinking, maybe you know something about the five identities and you're thinking, isn't this the evangelism verse, right? Like, isn't this our witnesses verse? What, what does this have to do with worship? Well, I think it displays for us. It, it shows us, you know, some insight into what worship is, which I think most of us are very, very confused about. And it shows us what worship produces. And to look at this, we got to step back from the story kind of big picture for a second. And we have to realize everyone in this room is created to worship. It's not, it's not thanks. Thank you, that's right. Uh, it's not some like exclusive Christian thing that us religious people do. Every human being is worshiping all the time. Um, most often we think of worship as gathering as the church right now. So singing, clapping, shouting, reading scripture, etc. And those things are good and worship involves those things. Even before any of that happens though, worship, as you look through the scriptures, it's a pointing of your soul. It's a posture of your soul. It's, it's your soul looking to something. And you, you can kind of consider three questions of where, where is my soul pointing or what does that mean? So a, a soul, the posture of the soul, it's pointed towards something when first you honor it. So you speak highly of it. You regard it. Uh, it's easy for you to talk about it and, and you get excited talking about it. You, you honor whatever it is. Second, you sacrifice for it. And, you know, and some people, Pagan religions, that may mean actually sacrificing and killing some animal for it, but functionally it's saying no to one thing so you can say yes to another thing. I'm going to lay down my preference for this thing so that I can do this thing. You're willing to sacrifice for the object of your worship. And third, you rejoice over it. So when you get the thing or the thing happens, it creates some delight in you. It creates some joy in you. An even simpler way to think about that is you worship what you believe makes you feel safe. It's, it's the thing that you look to and you say, if only I had this, 
Do you can see the honor aspect in that? It's something's lifted up for you and you look to it and say, if I only had this, and then in pursuit of that, you make all kinds of sacrifices. If I only had this, and so I'm willing to lay down these things. I'm willing to lay whatever it might be. And when you get it, you get at least a degree of temporary joy. Fundamentally, worship is the act of, of looking to something in hopes of finding ultimate safety and joy. If you're a person who, like, you're just worried about safety all the time, there's nothing wrong with that. Humans are created to feel safe emotionally and physically. So that's safe from violence, but it's also safe from betrayal. It's safety to be intimate and vulnerable. These are deeply human desires. There's nothing wrong with desiring that. The problem is at some point we all learn that life is scary. Amen? Gentle amen? Amen? Life is scary. It's not safe out there. I don't know that I've met someone who hasn't had the, the floor drop out on them, whether in their own life or in someone close to them, like by the time they're 25. And, and you just get this wake-up call that life is not what I thought it would be. Unpredictable things happen. As far, I don't know if there's ever been a human who hasn't had unpredictable tragedy hit their life or the life of someone very close to them. Like it, it is a universal human experience that life is scary and unpredictable We want to feel free from the threat of violence and oppression, but we also want to be free to know one another and be known by them. And and so many of us look for that safety in our circumstances. Now, if you go to statistics, it would say right now is the best time. To be a United States citizen right now is the best time to be a human being in history. You're the safest, healthiest, probably going to live the longest of any human beings ever. And there's some people that that's obviously not true for, right? But most of us, you are the safest of anyone that has ever been in human history. And yet, anxiety is rampant in our society. So many of us think that if I got that job, if I got that marriage, if my marriage changed this way, if I could save this much, then I would feel okay. And so we spend usually our 20s and 30s running hard after that. By the time you're 40, enough life has hit where you realize that doesn't work. Or maybe the worst thing has happened to you and you got it, right? You you got the money and you got the job and you got the house and realize then that didn't work and your soul utterly panics. And you all know what we call that when, when you have a soul freak out in your 40s? The midlife crisis, right? It's when you guys went and bought your Corvette or you went and bought the lake house or whatever it is, or you did something even crazier because you're looking for a way out and a new life to start over. Our souls are looking to something. Every one of you this morning is looking to something and your soul is looking to that and crying out, save me. Worship is not optional. You will look to something to feel safe. So what you honor? What do you sacrifice for? What do you rejoice over? What are you looking to, thinking it will finally bring you peace and security? I think a lot of us have found that it's hard and it's not working, whatever it is we're looking for. And so like the disciples, we've hunkered down and we're staying inside. So you're created to worship. Now, with this text, one of the things that really strikes me is the waiting involved in worship. So yeah, these people I think there's genuine fear going on, but they also had a promise from Jesus. And so 
they're waiting in fear, but I also think they're waiting in faith. I, I love in the liturgy that verse that we mentioned where uh, the, the disciples see Jesus and it says they believed and they still had their doubts. So there's fear and faith happening at the same time here. They're, they're hunkered down. And later in Acts, we're going to come to this verse several times through this series, we get a picture of what it looked like when they gathered together, these daily rhythms. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So listen, uh, sometimes we look at the early church like these mythical superheroes that are doing the incredible, but this, there's nothing impressive or spectacular about this. Look at what they're doing. So for us, this would be studying the Bible, the apostles' teaching. That's what comes to us in the pages of the scripture. So they're doing Bible study. Okay, what else are they doing though, right? Fellowship, sharing each other's burdens, building relationships, hanging out. Then they did something that I think is especially holy and sacred. They ate together, right? Sharing in meals, including communion, Lord's Supper. And they prayed. Like this, is nor this is Christianity 101. They read the Bible together. They became friends with one another. They ate food together and they prayed together. For, for them, pointing their souls to Jesus was both practical and ordinary for them. It was just like normal, in the normal regular rhythms of the Christian life. Uh, the, the notion of saying a prayer and life just going on like it had would have been utter craziness for them. Some of the revivalism that's popular in our area where it's like, hey, are you a Christian? And it's like, well, yeah, I went to youth camp when I was 12 and I said this prayer and got baptized. That's kind of like saying, are you married? And it's like, well, yeah, I went through a wedding ceremony when I was 12. Where's your wife? I'm not really sure where she is. When, when is the last time you talked to each other? We don't really talk, but I know I'm married because this thing happened. How weird that would look for us. And, and similarly, if we went back there and said to them, hey, there's whole sections of the American church now that think every day should look like Pentecost, where we're on fire for Jesus and going, they would be like, well, that's crazy. That happened one time, this wildness that happened. The apostles did some cool stuff. For most Christians, Christianity looked very ordinary and practical, not this kind of like supernatural craziness. So in Christ, you're legally declared to be a worshiper, which means God is the object of your worship. And in Christ, you're invited to continually redirect your souls to experience safety in God. If you, if you have a time where you feel on fire for Christ, that's wonderful. If you don't, that's normal. Christianity is a normal, regular, ordinary rhythm of redirecting your souls in Christ. And being saved means having faith that only in Christ, only in God, will your soul find the safety that it's longing for. Like all of the disciples here, um, we make a choice at one point to point our hearts to Jesus, right? We, we make a confession of faith. We make a choice. At some point, we see what he's done for us and we decide, I'll follow him. Like a wedding vow, there's a time when our status changes. But like a marriage, that relationship is experienced and grows through everyday rhythms over time. So as the church, we gather like we are now. We sing, we fellowship, we enjoy the Lord's Supper, we pray. And listen, sometimes it feels right. If you're the people, like if you're the on fire for Jesus person who comes on fire for Jesus eight Sundays out of 10, I'm really thankful that you're here. Like we need your enthusiasm and we need your energy. Uh, sometimes it won't feel right. And coming to church is like a last ditch effort or you come here at the end of your rope and, and you don't know where else to turn. In marriage, sometimes it's easy to do the dishes, right? It's easy to show affection. It's easy to be encouraging. But if you only do these things when the moment feels right, it's not 
worship. Sometimes we, we do the things we do as worshipers because it feels right. Other times we do it in hopes that it will feel right because we're so desperate, we're so anxious, we're so confused that all we know to do is cry out to the Lord and wait for him to answer his promises. Worship involves a conscious choice, but also a consistent redirecting of our souls to Christ. So we do what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, even when we don't feel like it. Sometimes you'll clap and you'll shout and you'll sing loud because you just feel it in your bones that it's true. And other times we will do this because we know we need it to anchor our souls. When we feel so lost and confused and disoriented, we cry out to God in hopes that our souls become stable and secure. Worship is a regular rhythm of Christianity. It's a conscious, consistent choice we make, and it's found in the ordinary, everyday rhythms that we step into them, waiting on the Lord to move. This is what's going on in the disciples. They're gathered together doing ordinary Christian things, waiting on the Lord to move. And, and then he does. And we see the incredible power that it produces. Like, you should go home and read this Acts 2 again and really wrestle with how did they get so different? What changed in them? Through their worship, they receive an experience of the presence of God. And suddenly their fears are replaced with confidence and real power. You see the power that's going on with these people? Not like the power to become something great, but the power to step into darkness and speak truth to power, to push back the darkness of the world around them, unconcerned about the consequences and what it might cost them. This is what happens when the soul points to God. It finds a safe place to land. We look to God in the waiting, in the hoping, and he meets us and our soul is anchored. And suddenly when you're not so scared, your fears are replaced with power and confidence. We act and we go. You know, no circumstances change. It's not like someone slips a note under the road that's like, hey, new legislation is coming out that says it's actually going to be illegal to kill Christians now. And like, oh, awesome, now we can go talk about it, right? Like, no circumstances changed. Their identity changed. Their experience of who they are changed. And so they went, they spoke, they did. When we experience God's presence, we find that we are truly safe and we can trust him. So maybe that's like the fundamental question for you this morning. Do you want to feel safe? Do you want to be filled with power? Then your invitation is to turn your heart to the Lord. We've got an entire section of the How We Grow wall about how you can grow as a worshiper. We have the opportunity to sing in a few moments, and I'm pleading with you, give yourself over to this. Give yourself over to this. Even if you feel great right now, there's just too many, there's too many adults in this room. Someone in here is at the end of the rope. I promise you. Someone in this room is desperate to hear from God. So sing for them. They need to hear you. They need to be encouraged. If you are that person, sing louder than you know how to sing. Clap, respond, do something, not because you feel like it's true, but because you're desperate for it to be true. Because you want this to transform your soul. You want your anxiety replaced with peace. You want your fear replaced with power. We set our eyes on Jesus who started and will finish our faith and it is only in experiencing his transforming presence that the soul finds a safe place to land. So we, like David, 
can gather and we can say to the Lord, we, we lift our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? And oh, what a better answer we have than David. We, we, we're not in speculation anymore. We're not wondering how the help will come. We know help has come and our help's name is Jesus. We can look to a cross. We can look to an empty tomb and know our help comes from the Lord. And here's God's promise to you this morning, all you worshipers. He who saved you will keep you. He who keeps you will empower you for whatever he's called you to do. And if he's empowered you, he will lead you beside still waters and the green pastures. So we come to anchor ourselves in the presence of God that we might be filled with power and confidence to go and be his people. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you just think, All this Christianity nonsense doesn't apply to you. Like here again from Romans 5, we have evidence of God's love for us in this. How do you know God loves you? How can you say that, preacher? You don't know what I've done. I don't, but I know what Jesus has done. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have evidence of God's love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for you to find perfect faith. He drew near to you and says, look at my body broken for you. You have evidence of my love for you. After the meal... He took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. It seals my relationship with you. So so listen, you know, on the cross, Jesus didn't cry out, um, do better this time. He he didn't cry out, uh, we got a pretty good start. He he cries out, it is finished. The night before, when when he held this cup up, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which seals your relationship with God. It's not up to doubt anymore. It's not up to question. It's not based on your performance or your religiosity. You are completely safe with God because of the finished work of Christ. Uh, And so maybe all you can muster up your prayer is, I believe, help me believe. Give yourself over to the worship of the Lord and see what happens. Um, Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christian, let's come anchor our souls in the love of God so we might go and be his people. Let's pray.